Fab Lab Podcast, digital stoneworking interview with Mark Lazan and Bill Elliott. Welcome to the Fab Lab, the stone industry's only podcast dedicated exclusively to the business side of your stone shop, where we focus on improving operations inside the business so we can experience more life outside of it. So let's get down to business. Welcome back to another episode of the Fab Lab Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Crowley, here with my co-host... Wesley Rice. Wes, good to be with you. Ah, it's great to be back. You know, when we do these interview episodes, they never disappoint, and this one's no different. This is a really substantial... I mean, there is an amazing amount of information, education, insight into our industry in this short episode. Well, it's not really short. I think it's going to end up being the longest episode that we've had... (laughs) But it's kind of unique. You know, you said you know, we always learn something new. They're always special. And, and, and in, in a way, they're, they're always unpredictable. Because, you know, when you sit down and just have a conversation with somebody, the conversation takes on a life of its own. And we really intended in this one not to have an agenda, not to start with a goal or an objective or an outcome that we wanted. We didn't have a message. I, I know Mark was on really well. I've known him for years and years and years. And then he mentioned that Bill Elliott from Slabsmith was here in Portland. And so it was like, hey, let's just sit down and have a podcast. And we literally sat down <laughs> and started recording. And so it was a very enlightening conversation. And, um, and, and it was unpredictable. Something actually kind of interesting and humorous in retrospect happened. What was it from a, from an editor's, from a producer's standpoint, what was your perspective on this little, uh, uh, well, when you're recording, yeah. Well, when you're recording live, especially an interview where you have great momentum going, as a producer, you're listening to it, and you're like, "Yeah, we're on track." And all of a sudden, something happens, <laughs> and you quickly figure out how can we navigate this to get back on track with our momentum. But you got to listen to it because it's a first for me. Yeah, it's well, it's a first for the Fab Lab podcast, and it was. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's worth listening. Do you know about where in the episode, you know, the timestamp where that is approximately? It's about, it's about two-thirds in, so okay. you got to go a little deep, but it's worth it. So at about the two-thirds point, ladies and gentlemen, there, there's an interaction. We're not going <laughs> to spill the beans. No, no spoiler. But it was awkward. Yeah. And at least in the moment. Yeah. And it was more awkward for some. Than for others, and uh, so we laugh about it now. It yeah. was uh, it was it was just a unique experience. I think you'll find it entertaining. We discussed should we edit that out. At least that mm-hmm. was I think our yeah. first inclination was well. Obviously, we can edit that out. And mm-hmm. you know, how do we do that without people realizing? And then we said, you know, now why? It's reality. It is. Leave it in there. I think it'll be. I think it'll be entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, hopefully, Mark and Bill find it as entertaining uh, as we did. <laughs> but uh, but ladies and gentlemen, th- that's just. Uh, that's a bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, the the interview, the conversation was profoundly informative. In fact, I came back to our stone shop, got a couple of my managers together and said, guys, I hate it when this happens. When you learn new information that you know you have to deal with and you either have to stick your head in the sand and ignore it because of the implications, it requires change. It forces you to confront things that you need to do differently in the business and that's what I came back with after this interview and uh, and so we're, we're working on it and um, we're, we're preparing for some additional change in the business and so ladies and gentlemen this is a great interview we talk about digital stoneworking Mark Lazan uh, has, has been involved in many aspects of that over the years from templating from manufacturing from equipment sales and then Bill Elliott with Slabsmith that digital side of photographing slabs and, and converting those into a layout scenario um, for programming digital saws it's just these guys are deeply deeply 
deeply knowledgeable about the the fundamentals of digital stoneworking and this evolution that is happening. I mean, it's, you, you just can't escape it. You you can maybe get out of the way, kind of, but you, you're going to have to deal with it. And so that's the topic that, that basically materializes, which is not a shock because that's their background and that's their expertise and their specialty. Uh, but we just sat down and started talking, and it's, it's a, it is a great interview. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy this interview as much as Wes and I did. Um, before we get to the interview, I want to mention a word from our sponsor. Interesting comparison here, interesting correlation. This week's sponsor is Moraware. More, when you're talking about digital stoneworking, an obvious place to start is how you communicate information, how you quote, how you schedule, how you inventory, how you manage the workflow within your business. You may not be able to go buy a CNC tomorrow or a, a CNC saw next week or Slabsmith or a digital template machine necessarily right away, but if you don't have Moraware, um, that is a place that you can start digitally transforming your business to a highly evolved, highly specialized software program that allows you to manage the business internally from quoting, from scheduling, from tracking the work in your shop and in the field, you know, return trips. It is an amazingly powerful program built exclusively for stone fabrication shops. It does not matter how small you are. It does not matter how big you are. Moraware is a software program that is going to tremendously improve the efficiencies. How, you know, this, this happens all the time. The phone rings, customer calls. Yeah, I'm wondering when you're supposed to be coming out to install my countertops. Or I'm wondering when my template is. If you don't have Moraware, chances are the person that answers that phone doesn't know that answer. And they've got to say, you know what, either let me put you on hold, um, let me call you back, let me go ask around, and you ask the people that might know. If you have Moraware, anybody in your company has instantaneous access to that information and can answer that question. Or, hey, I've got an answer, I got a question about my quote. Instead of having to go, well, who's got the file? Where's the paperwork? Oh, she had it, but she's out at lunch. But she handed it to somebody else and they're with a customer. You know what, Mrs. Jones, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to call you back. Or none of us can find the file. Where is the quote? With Moraware, anybody in the entire company has access to that information instantly. It is so well organized, it is so accessible, it is so available. It just, it just streamlines every aspect of the management of a stone fabrication company. So ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't visited moreaware.com, you need to visit moreaware.com. Check out their website. Check out the aspects of this fantastic software. You can call them. Their number's right there. You can email them. Their email is right there. You can schedule a free demo. In fact, that's how I originally bought Moreware. Harry Hollander, the owner of Moreware, 15 years ago did an online demo and I signed up on the spot. So ladies and gentlemen, make sure you visit moreware.com if you want to begin your evolution towards digital stoneworking. Now for the interview. Enjoy. I'm your host, Aaron Crowley, the Fab Lab Podcast. Joining me today is Mark Lazan with everything and Bill Elliott with Slabsmith. Guys, welcome to the Fab Lab Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. What's up, Aaron? How you been, man? I've been well. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I should give you a little bit better introduction. Ah. Mark, you, you, you go way back. You and I have, uh, have known each back, other for man. some years. Way so. back, yeah. So, so back in 2000, end of 2005, 2006, I ordered one of the very, very first Northwood routers, and Aaron 
ordered the same router probably right about the exact same time I did. And so Aaron and I together, and actually Aaron was templating digitally before I was. I think he was one of the first guys I knew that was digital. You were using, what was the name of the system? The uh, E-Template. E-Template, right. And uh, when we got our CNC, we had, we had, we got the LT55, if I remember right, and we had, okay. we'd made the plastic templates and did all that stuff. And yeah. I can remember Aaron sent one of his guys over. This is, this, is, this, is how, this is how far Aaron and I go back. Think about this for a minute, guys. Aaron sends one of his guys over to do an e-template demo, right? And we fire up the laptop, we set up the little stickers and stuff, we take the photographs, and he hits start on the, uh, on the Microsoft laptop, and we got the famous blue screen of death <laughs> during the demo. And I, I, I look back, I think, well, wow, that is just something else. Yeah. And no, I, I wasn't there for that. No, you weren't. But, but I mean, it was, it was kind of, that's how, we, 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 we go back to the blue screen yeah. of death days, right? Yeah. I mean, think about that for a second. I, that, that, we, do we even still deal with that, Bill? Does that still happen? <clears throat> no, well, yeah, it's always possible. Is it blue? Yes, it is. Is it actually. still blue? Yeah, you know I'm a blue. Mac guy, right? I don't, I don't know nothing about that. Yeah, my condolences. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I'll be all right. Well, my first recollection, I wasn't at the famous blue screen event, but my first recollection was when we came down to see the Northwood for the first time. Was that at my shop? Was it your shop? Oh, okay, we then right went on. to that little restaurant, little Mexican restaurant. Yeah, Senior Lopez. I have this... This picture in my mind, you sitting back against the wall at the picnic table inside. We're drinking Corona like in the middle of the afternoon, and you had camo shorts. And you had a hairdo and a goatee that made you look like um, the guy from Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl. So, that's, so things have changed a little bit in the last 13, I, I, 12, I, 13 years. I, I, you, I had you, to clean up my act a little bit. My kids have gotten older, and i gotta, <laughs> I got to set a good example for them, so I can't, I can't go around mm-hmm. looking like, uh, like, a, like a nut. But um, I'll tell you another thing Aaron and I used to do. I mean, th- and this is the cool thing about organizations like the SFA and before the SFA when we had Stone Advice. Aaron and I are the first people I know of, the first fabricators that I know of in the stone industry that actually collaborate. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is when I, he got his CNC and I had my CNC, Aaron and I were both very high-end fabricators. We worked mm-hmm. for big, big premium, but we did a lot of like stack 6CM edges, OG, OG bullnoses, full bullnoses. And back then, if you were going to buy a set of OG bullnose tools, I think I paid like $4,700 for my set. I mean, a crazy mm-hmm. amount of money. And I think if I remember right, Aaron had a full bullnose set, which cost probably almost as much. And these are, these, are, these are tools we would use once or twice, three times, four times a year maybe. Yeah. And Aaron and I would trade tooling. He would come over and borrow my OG bullnose tools, and I would jam over there and go get his bullnose tools. And, and a lot of that, that, that camaraderie, because at that time in the industry... It's a very different time. It was paranoid. Where, where today it's much more common with the SFA and all of the sharing and the peer-to-peer you know, learning that's going on. Back then, there was, it was a very different environment, I mean, competitively it, it, speaking. And it was paranoid. Mm-hmm. It, it was paranoid. Pe- people that knew how to do things were worried about other people learning how to do things. They didn't want to share ideas with their competitors. And uh, it, was, it was a different time now. Yeah. And, I, and I, I enjoy the new culture. I enjoy mm-hmm. the, the social media. I enjoy being on Facebook and talking to fabricators every day and sharing ideas and yeah. getting ideas. And, 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 it, and it helps really move the needle and technologically. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, because we've got Bill Elliott here, I can remember when we first got our, our saw jet back in 06. I got machine like number five or four or three or whatever. It was very early, early. I won the very first, actually, I think I got the first single bed because the first five were twins or something like that, but whatever, who cares? Very early in the game. One of the challenges that we had is how the heck, because we're doing digital templates, we don't have physical templates anymore, and we've got a digital saw. How do we put the templates on the slab to see what it's going to look like? Right. This was a huge challenge. It was a total pain because suddenly we're doing digital templates and we're printing vinyl templates to put on the slab to figure out the layout 
so that we could then go back to a digital. So we went digital, analog, digital to try to figure out how to make the veins line up. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. We just take tape measures. Remember, you measure oh, the yeah. vein, and then you take the fall off, and you take the template, you bring it over here, you dick around, dick around. And right around that time, Robbie Tidwell called me up. He says, Mark, you got to fly down to Northwood. So I fly down to Northwood, and he shows me the development beta version mm-hmm. of Bill Elliott's Slabsmith. Now, what's mm-hmm. interesting about Bill, what you don't know, is there was a product made by a guy named Chris Cheney. It was a digitizing board. Mm-hmm. So before Slabsmith, Bill, who's got a huge background in software and software development, had developed the CAD interface for Chris Cheney's digitizing board. There's some of those which are still is, out there working today. Which is actually today. how we, we, <laughs> it is how we ri- first originally met. met when he called up to tell me what was wrong with it. And we actually didn't like each other when we met. No. We didn't get along. And now we're best of friends. We just hang out and have fun. But at that time... It was just a prototype? It was, it was, a, beta, it was, a, beta, it was a beta build of, of, of what, what became Slabsmith. I think you were even calling it. Well, no, no. It, no, it, it wasn't, was actually, no. It wasn't a beta build. It was a build. completely was, different product. In fact, it was, what was, it, was it called MC Ditch. Oh, no, no. You're talking about for the ch- digitizing board. Right, right. Oh, no. What you I, look I to was, see what, what, it. No, I, at Northwood, yeah. yeah. That would have been an early beta of Slabsmith, yes. Yeah, so, so what happened was I flew down to Northwood, and, and Robbie is – and there's videos of me on YouTube where I – published this stuff back in 06 or 07. You can actually go watch these crazy Probably movies. more like 05. Yeah. Oh, maybe 05. I th- yeah. Robbie and I made a video uh, of the original Slabsmith. And when I saw that, when I saw the original friggin' Slabsmith, my head exploded. <laughs> I just could not believe that just by moving a mouse around, I could line the veins up, line the shading. I, I was absolutely mind blown. And, and it's interesting. Here we are. Oh, geez, 15, 15 years yeah, later, yeah. right? And what's what's fun is you'll be, on, you'll be on Facebook or on the SFA site, and we show this technology to people today, and it's as if it was 15 years mm-hmm. ago. It's really interesting how a lot of shops that aren't tuned into social media, aren't so are just doing their things and don't get exposed to some yeah. of this technology. And I think that's yeah. where things like this podcast that we're doing right now, things and, and this SFA and, 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 and the, the big group on Facebook mm-hmm. and the social media where, where people are going to trade shows more, yeah. they're sharing ideas more. Yeah. Um, great products and great stuff get get a light, get a positive light shine on them. Mm-hmm. Stuff that doesn't work isn't effective. Fabrica- fabricators find out about it, yeah. and, and and I think all the things that are going on have done. I think what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years in the improvement of the technology for processing stone, the way to think about processing stone, and and some of the things that are going on are very interesting. I think where the business is going, there's so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's really, you know, where I think the opportunity here lies to talk about the technology and how it has developed, how it's evolved, you know, not too many years and after continuing this. continuing to evolve. And continues. But, you know, we had that, that starting point where the technology was beginning to become available. And then we had the great, you know, the great recession, the building downturn that was so difficult. So just walk, walk, walk us through from your perspective, having been much more involved in the, the, the advancement of this digital technology. What did that period look like? Bring us up to today. In terms of how um, you, you know you know how that evolution continued. And, yeah. Well, um, when, when I got involved in the stone industry, I got involved specifically because um, we had been doing things within the let's call it the CNC industry, so computer-aided manufacturing, since the early '90s. Our first product uh, that worked with you know CNC machines mm-hmm. was in 1991. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> between then and when Slabsmith came about, I really ignored the stone industry entirely. We did things like mold and dye. Um, I did a lot of consulting in things like the aerospace injury f- in industry for five-axis machining. Um, but then actually uh, Northwood, Northwood Machine, um, who I was doing a lot of consulting for on their aerospace side at the time, 
um, told me that they were having some troubles in the stone side and they needed a better way to lay things out because, um, well, they did. And they spent about an hour in a room with me and said, you know, here's the kind of thing we're looking for. What do you think? And literally within that first hour, I thought, well, if I wanted to do this, I don't know anything about the stone industry, but if I wanted to lay things out, I, you know, I had a vision of what that should look like and how I would want it to work. And to be honest with you, the way the main layout portion of Slabsmith, which is just a small piece of it, but that portion of it looks pretty much exactly like yeah. I pictured it in that first hour to, to this day. No kidding. Because it works. <laughs> um, anyway, so then they said, you know, so what do you think? And I said, yeah. I said, that's, you, you bring up some good business points there. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll take care of it. You want us to, I said, no, good. I'll take care of it. <laughs> um, so we began work on Slabsmith. Hmm. Um, our very first customer was... Uh, in Effingham. Um, Bill, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. My, my friend from Pyramid. Uh, yes, oh, Pyramid yeah. Granite. Boy, we're both losing it here. Ah, we're getting old. Um, yeah. Barry? Barry Barry Brandt. Oh, my yes. God, one of my best friends. Barry yeah, Brandt. Barry, Barry, <laughs> Barry, what's up, baby? <laughs> yeah, so Barry uh, Barry insisted on, on having it. And Robbie called me up and said, hey, we, we need it. I said, it's not ready. I said, it's simply not ready. And he said, no, we have to have it now. And I said, I'm not ready. No, we have to have it now. Uh, so we went out and we installed it. I installed it at Barry Brandt's, um, got everything set up for the very first time, and uh, got it running. I left, and for two weeks I heard nothing. <laughs> now, this started to concern me. So eventually I gave him a call to see what was going on, and I got Jason, uh, his son, on the line. And I said, hey, Jason, how's it going? He said, hey, Bill, you know, how are you doing? I said, it's great. And he went on to just give me general chit-chat for the next five minutes. Of course, the whole time I'm on the edge of my seat because right, right. I want to know right. if it's working or not. You know, we haven't even really released it. And eventually I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, Jason, uh, by the way, you know, how's it working? He said, oh, it's working great. We're having a good time. You know, no problem. And that was the end of the conversation. Huh. And uh, so that was our, our first customer. And at that point, then we, you know, tried to button down the rest of the things we wanted to button down for the first release. It's, mm. it's a very significantly different program at this point. Mm. But um, but that was the beginnings of it. Yeah. yeah. So Mark, you mentioned you know here we are 15 years later and there are still you know there are still fabricators that are going. Where's this been? Is, is this brand new? And they don't realize that this technology exists. You know. So what would you what would you say to a fabricator like that that's hearing this discussion about Slabsmith and and he mentioned the five axis saws which I know you sell. You know what uh, what would you tell somebody who's hearing this for the first time and and the advent of this technology today. Right. When I when I look at when I look at Slabsmith and I think this is the the most interesting thing about Slabsmith and the most least understood and discussed part about Slabsmith even from my good friend Bill Bill Elliott who actually wrote the software. To me when I look at the software, a lot of people look at it and they see a problem solving solution. I've got a problem. I need to line up the veins. Let's line up the veins. Let's manufacture this piece and make sure it looks good when we install it. Mm -hmm. That's one way to look at Slabsmith. That's the problem solving part. What's more fascinating to me and we why I like to bring this up is because I'm not guessing, I'm not speculating if this works. We've done this. There's a proven model for this. And what we did with Slabsmith up in Seattle with, with Denali was a fascinating twist. So when we set up Denali, right, this was a high-end slab studio. It's still in existence. It's still up there. And one of the things that, that Prem and I did that we decided that would be really interesting to make slab distribution slightly different, slightly more interesting, and slightly add more value for the fabricators and add more value for our customers, what we did is we actually photographed 2,300, 3,000 slabs that we had in inventory. They were all exotic. And the way we deployed Slabsmith was actually as a sales tool. Now, so often we look at Slabsmith as something that solves manufacturing problems, right? And it certainly does, and I love it for that. 
But the part that often gets overlooked in the ROI analysis, hey, if I'm going to spend all this money, set up the software, take the time to photograph all these slabs, set up the light tree, dedicate a space, have guys actually do all this activity, am I going to get a return on my investment? I've been lining up veins with templates and tape measures forever, and I only do it a few times a week, blah, blah, blah. Do I really need to spend this money and invest all this? Well, if you start to think of Slabsmith as a sales tool and what you can do with it, it gets pretty fascinating. For example, when we at Denali, we weren't fabricating. We were selling slabs, and the customer would come in with a napkin sketch of their kitchen. We would render it really quickly in CAD. I would tell the customer to walk through the warehouse, and I'd say, oh, pick out a couple slabs you like. Do you like the creme bordeaux? Do you like the magma? Do you like the sedna? Do you like the cosmos? Do you like the teak wood? And the customer would pick two or three slabs, and we'd bring them into the office. And we had two 27-inch high-resolution monitors, and we would bring up Slabsmith, and we would lay their kitchen out, based on the sketch that they gave us, on the three colors they selected. And then we could take screenshots of these, and we would ask the customer, which of these do you like the best? And she would say, oh, can you turn the vein on this one a little bit this way and get that big vein on the island? And I'd say, sure, and we'd flip it around. And the minute the customer tells you, can you flip it around and put the island there, you own the customer. It's your customer. Guess what? You don't have to be the low-cost solution provider anymore. You don't have to sell the UbaTuba for $9 a foot. It turns out that when you involve the customer in the layout process as a sales tool, one, you lock down the sale. Two, you can sell the product for more. But more importantly, for the rest of their lives, as they move through three-dimensional space and do their things and have their kids and go here and go there and have little Christmas parties and people coming over for kids' birthdays, from that day forward, when everyone ever says to them, my God, your kitchen looks amazing, that woman, you know what she's going to say, Aaron? She's going to say, she say, not only yeah. did I pick this stone, I laid it out and I was able to tell them where I wanted the veins. Yeah. They're going to share that on Facebook. They're going to tell all their friends. And for the next 10 years, you've got a salesperson for your organization mm -hmm. that is out there moving your product that doesn't cost you a dime. And if you can run a business that allows you to generate on referral-based sales, it's like car insurance, okay? Insurance is not free. And when you can insure someone, assure them that what they bought and all this exotic material is actually going to look like in their house before they even write a check. Yeah. You can charge a lot more, you get free marketing, and all these other things. So when we talk about Slabsmith, and we talk about solving problems, lining up veins, taking two slabs of quartz that aren't the same color and making it match so you know that this bundle matches with that bundle, you don't get burned on the install. When we talk about managing your entire inventory, being able to cut a slab, have a remnant, have it go back into your inventory as an inventoried piece, not have to utilize, not have to go read a photo photograph that remnant, crank out barcodes, scanners, all these things are wonderful from a manufacturing standpoint. But don't forget when you're doing an ROI calculation on Slabsmith that not only does it solve your manufacturing problems, if used intelligently, you can create marketing material with it, you can build catalogs, you can integrate your Slabsmith database into your website so that people can see your inventory, you can integrate your remnants, it can solve a lot of problems for you. Well, on the post-install, if the customer's seen it already and they've agreed, that's the layout sure. I want, the yeah. number of those callbacks just plummets because, and, hey, I picked it, I picked it. So well, I'm usually, not gonna... A lot of people will actually get a sign-off on the final layout and they'll yeah. print it out and say, you know, verify this is what you want. But again, yeah. but again, see, for me, getting a sign-off, taking a photograph, sending it to you, hey, is this what you want us to do? Yes, we love it. That feels more like you're trying to cover your ass. Well, you are. 
You are. <laughs> right, right. But wouldn't it be cool to yeah. achieve the same thing? And, and people say, oh, I don't have time to bring the customer into my shop and spend a half hour no, with No, you actually them. don't have time not to. I, I don't disagree with you. Now, if you're a, if you're a massive low-end cost provider manufacturing facility where you're banging out stuff for $32 a foot or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, maybe bringing the customers in to do a layout on the Santa Cecilia isn't going to make sense. <laughs> but if, if you're a medium-sized shop doing high-end work, high-end residential work, if you're, doing, if, you're doing a, if you're selling directly to the end user and you have some inventory, this is a fantastic way not only to not make manufacturing mistakes, but to actually involve the layout as part of a sales tool. And yeah. let, me, let me interject for just a minute because <clears throat> everything you're saying is true, but I think it's important to point out that, um, I mean, I see what's happening in the real world um, you know, with our customers, and some of them absolutely do exactly what you're saying. Some of them wouldn't let a customer be involved in the layout if their life depended mm-hmm. on it. Um, other <laughs> other I know ones, those guys. yeah. Other ones uh, would you know charge actually literally charge to say, hey, mm-hmm. you can either trust us and we'll give you a couple of options, or you know for two hundred fifty dollars you can mm-hmm. you can be part of it because they need to cover their time. Yeah, all true. But the really thing I wanted to point out here was this: is that it's too often Slabsmith is viewed in a very myopic sense. In other words, a lot of people think of... What does myopic mean? A very, very narrow view. Okay? Um, And anyway, what happens is everybody thinks about it on the top level, which is the layout portion of the software. And it is the sexy fun bit. Mm -hmm. There's no question. But it's important to realize the Slabsmith is an entire system. It's dealing with your remnant inventory. It's dealing with your main inventory. It's dealing with, even at your saw, your sawyer sees what he's cutting. He knows what parts are remnants. He knows what parts are countertops. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a system that's all integrated for every single job. You know exactly what your yield st- statistics are. Um, you know, you, you can see how much is remnant, how much is counter, how much is waste, and that's for every job or even any query. You can say, during April, all the jobs I completed, what were my yield statistics? They're just on Ubatuba, if you want. Yeah. The point is, is there's a lot more going on than the layout. The layout today, while it is what it started out to be, that was the first thing we really did. Today, it's a, it's a little piece mm. of the big puzzle. And so the real point I'm trying to make here is that while it's absolutely true, it's a wonderful sales tool and you can use it in any fashion you want, our customers are varied and, and moldable. Mm. And so we have customers that photograph stuff a couple of times a week and they do it just before they're cutting. And we have people with five and 6,000 slabs in inventory and every single one of them has wow. been photographed and is in Slabsmith and they're photographing 100 slabs a day mm-hmm. and maintaining all their inventory and they have live inventory in their websites and they've got all these numbers. We can go and say exactly how many square feet of something do I have. Hey, I need a remnant of this material. I need an internal dimension of this size to fit. Oh, I've got these three. Do any of them match in color? Which is something Mark alluded to, and I just want to touch base on that. There's two things that make um, Slabsmith unique, and that is the degree of accuracy dimensionally and the degree of accuracy color-wise that is available. That means that even on old generic quartz colors, which everybody's had the the scenario where you put a counter, you go, yeah, that'll work. You put it together and the seam's no good mm-hmm. and you start over. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen if you've taken, if you've got a good setup with Slabsmith, everything's calibrated well, you see that and you don't cut it. So it gets rid of reworks. There's a thousand places you can, ju- you can justify an ROI, but the real point here is I don't want, it's important that you realize that Slabsmith isn't this or this or this. It's a collection of tools mm-hmm. And together, they make more money than they could separately. Hmm. Interesting. So you, you know, someone, what, what struck me in that, you know, I'm thinking someone's taking pictures of 5,000 slabs. So that one question comes up, and maybe we can come back to this. When are the suppliers going to start doing this? But, it's a tough but, thing but, for the suppliers. But before we get to that, you mentioned, 
you, Mark, when you were talking about the medium-sized shop, define a medium-sized shop. At what point does this? That's a great question. You know, it begin to make question. sense because someone who's who's maybe a medium or smaller is thinking, I'm not processing that many slabs. We, we, here's what we have to do. We have to first, really, the real question is, when is the right size to become digital? Because this is simply a part of that digital That process. is the question of the hour right now. I'm yes. hearing that talking to fabricators all the time who are doing sub-million dollars, and they're sure. being told, sure. we got to go digital. And they and should. And, 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 and so should. that's a yeah, sure. very, sure. very interesting I mean, we, we, we can go into that. Yeah, no, I think I, we but, should. But before yeah. we go into that, I want to yeah. tell you guys something that just occurred to me when I heard Bill talking about, before we move on away from Slabsmith. And this is something you guys need to understand. And I'm not trying to take it away from slabs. No, no, I, yeah, I, just, I, I, I get it. But this is something I think bears mentioning. And, and if you if you've not, I'm going to get a little bit. I'm going to go a little bit under the hood. Okay, I'm going to go a little bit under the hood. We, you, I want you to guys understand what's going on with slabs because this is one of my favorite. And Bill's not going to talk about it because it's too techy and too nerdy. But I'm going to force him to talk about it. It's fascinating. When you look at like, for example, you buy somebody's saw and they put three little targets they, they print out of their printer on a piece of paper with little black dots on the four corners of the table and they take a picture and it stretches the image and it sort of looks like a layout. It turns out that that's actually not accurate. And what, what I love to talk about, and Bill's not going to get into because it's so boring, but I love it. Uh, not boring, but it's details. If you take a photograph of something, it turns out that camera lenses are round, okay, like a ball. It, and imagine if you took a picture and laid it down inside of a salad bowl. It turns out that the distortion out towards the edges is much different than the distortion in the middle. So even if you skew the slab to get it to be the right size, it's actually not accurate. Hmm. What Bill's system does, and this is something we didn't talk about, when you buy Slabsmith, you also order a set of target boards. And these are built on a CNC machine. They have black dots that are drilled into the, into the target board every four inches. And what the software does, it understands that those dots are supposed to be exactly four inches apart. And the software compensates for the aspherical distortion of the camera lens. Literally compensates for any of this. Literally, literally compensates for the distortion so that it's not just stretching the image, it's actually massaging it. Like, mm -hmm. it, like in this area, it's moving the pixels a quarter inch. In this area, it's moving the pixels three-eighths of an inch. In this area, it's moving a half. To all in different directions. All in different high. directions, depending on what the camera lens is doing, because the software understands exactly what the image is supposed to look like with the dots on it. And that's just where it starts to get interesting. It turns out these target boards are a consistent white value. They're a matte white. And when you set up your flashes, not only is the software compensating for the aspherical distortion of the camera lens, it'll, the software analyzes for white. It, it turns out that if you take a white piece of paper, and you and I look at it right now, and we see a color white, I can go into that closet over there, and we look at that white piece of paper, and it looks gray because right. the lighting's different. I can go into a really dark space, and it looks really dark gray. It turns out the paper didn't actually change color. Mm how the lights interacting with the paper changed color. And what Bill's software allows you to do is when you set up your, your light trees, your flashes to take your flash photography, the, because this target board is a known white value, it looks at the white and says, okay, it's a little bit shaded over here, it's a little bit dark over there, and the software begins to compensate not only for aspherical distortion, but also compensates for shading. And the last step of the process is it uses a 20% gray card, 18% gray card? It's, yeah, it's roughly an 18% gray card. 18% gray card. You put an 18% gray card in the middle of the, of the target board, and the software, by looking at that color, knows that that's 18% gray and then corrects for color. Hmm. Yeah, it's a white balance correction. It's a white balance correction. So, it, so if you've got fluorescent yeah, in, lights... In the, end, the, the really important, you know, the, the end result of this is what's important, and the end result is, is the following. Dimensional accuracy to roughly a millimeter hmm. or less. Okay, anywhere on this lab, if you point at that spot, it's within a millimeter of reality. Hmm. The second thing is accurate colors, okay? 
um, and these are accurate relative to the sun. Which is important because I've talked to painters who said, I've had customers bring me into a room, show me the corner and say, you made the mistake, you painted this wall the wrong color and it's this very light situation you're talking light about. Light is a funny thing. Yeah. And the light distorts it and the customer thinks, right. in this case, you gave me the wrong slab. Right. No, actually no, I didn't. It's, actually this is I the didn't. one that you picked. Yep. Uh, but you're in your house, you're not in my warehouse and you're not in the sun and, and all of this right. matters for color. So our goal is this. Our goal is, at the very least, what you see on the screen, if it looks like it matches, it does. And if it looks like it doesn't, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. All right. But to do that, we have to do all of these things. We build light maps. We do all kinds of things. But the end result is that we have consistent and accurate color. And in fact, if people do a good calibration, I can take the same picture here in Portland. And I can go six months later with that same slab and take a picture in Philadelphia and get exactly the same result. And that's mm. key. And it's something that's very unique about Slapsmith is this ability to be consistent and accurate over time and even in different locations because of the calibration process. Now, when you say different, the, the different locations is because that suggests the different <clears throat> lighting. Well, it's not. Does that's it the point. That, that's, what I mean. that's what I'm trying to say. It's not that the location differs. It's that the light's going to differ. My but point you're is, still is that we can. We, we have the ability because uh, we have many customers with more than one location. They're taking pictures in different locations, but they may very well share slabs. Mm -hmm. If that's happening, they better be able to take the same picture in right. both locations right. and prove that it's the same picture. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of what he's alluding to. Right? But the, the end result is what I care about the previous comment about when are the distributors going to start giving us digital slabs bill so we don't have to take these photos ourselves it's you know there's <laughs> there's there's two levels to this the the better level is probably at the manufacturing level and we do have a few manufacturers around the world uh, we have about uh, five lines in brazil in one factory we also have a couple lines in italy at another factory so that's really the place if if you wanted to say what's the most appropriate place to take the picture if the fabricator doesn't have to take it, it's at the manufacturing line because we get it right at the end of the polishing line. Well, that's what makes, as I'm thinking of this purely from a material handling standpoint, that's that's where it all, I mean, it all makes perfect sense to me, but I'm thinking that the, the, the cost of the space and the cost of the the time when the suppliers got that slab sitting no, in a location that's fixed it, every time it comes off the machine, why? Yeah, there's, there's no question, but I think, you know, one of the things we probably should address... One of the things we should probably address um, is this notion of, because a lot of people, I hear this all the time, they say, well, I can't afford the time to take a picture of every slab. Mm -hmm. And the software doesn't require you to. The software, and me, as long as you're happy, so am I. Um, but the fact is, is that our most successful customers that are making the most money are photographing virtually everything, mm -hmm. including all their quartz, you name it. Okay? And they say, well, how can that make sense? And it's an interesting question. But it's a, it's a value proposition in the end, okay? Mm -hmm. The question is, if you take the picture over the course of the lifetime of that slab until it's installed, do you make more or less money by dedicating the time to take the picture? That's the real right. question. And as it turns out, you wouldn't have a customer taking 100 pictures a day and cutting 100 slabs a day who knows his numbers intimately, right, if it wasn't paying off. So the question is, how does that pay off? Okay, One, way, one simple way to th that it pays off is you reduce the touch time on that slab because if you've got a good picture and you can get all of the information of that picture know its color know its size know everything about it without having to touch it or move it you know the idea is once you've taken that photograph and you put the slab away you never touch it again until it goes to the saw mm -hmm. so that's just one little piece we go in further than that though so the remnants come out of the original picture that means not only do you not photograph remnants but because they're coming out of the original picture and they essentially become part of the layout okay 
because of that, what you wind up with yeah. is you have this uh, ability to generate that remnant directly out of the original slab. I don't like it, Mark. I just so, Bill, how else does Slabsmith work? Talk, talk to us about how, how remnants, you know, factor in this because of all the... Well, actually, it's an interesting question because remnants, you know, in the industry as a whole are, you know, one of the biggest problems that we have. It's the R word in our shop. Yes. Honestly. I exactly. Mean, it, so, it's here's, here's one that'll kind of uh, put a finer point on it. I have a customer not far from where I live who currently... Uh, has full control of his inventory via Slabsmith. All of his remnants are generated, you know, from the original picture, so he's not photographing remnants. He knows exactly what he has, and he has all of that live online. Mm. So a couple of months after he finished implementing all of the full inventory control and the, the live online, which is both his slabs and his remnant inventory, mm. I talked to him. I said, how, how do you like having your stuff online? And he said, I love it. He says, it's great. And I said, uh, how's the whole remnant thing doing for you? And he says, that's going fantastic, too. He says, I added two rows to my remnant yard. And I stopped for a minute. And I thought, sounds a little backwards to me. I, you know, I thought this was going to help him get rid of remnants, right? right? And I said, well, I thought it would help you sell more remnants. He says, it is helping me sell mm -hmm. more remnants. He says, I'm selling stuff now I used to throw away. He says, for the first time in the history of my company, remnants are a profit center. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm getting calls from people two and a half hours away, interior designers telling me, I want that piece, and they're coming, handing me money, and I hand them the remnant. Wow. And, of course, because they're all inventoried and barcoded and everything else, he can go right to the rack where it is, pick it up, and put it on the truck. He doesn't mess with them. Mm. So there are ways to, to turn remnants into something that's at least not a hassle. Right. Uh, not to mention, if you've got good control of your remnants, and you know exactly what size they are, and you know what color they are, mm. Now you can be laying out a job and going, man, I only need one more small piece to finish this job. Instead of starting with a full slab, you can go pick the full three or four remnants that might match, mm. stick them into the layout, slide that over, and when it looks good, you know you can use that remnant. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's another part of the ROI. The ROI is difficult to tell you. I had one customer that told me he could justify the ROI simply on remakes. remakes. Mm because he stopped having colors that almost matched, it seems. And, and of course, remakes are a problem because they wind up all being done on overtime. So they cost, not only do you have the cost of the original counters, you have the cost of the overtime. You have, it's a, it's a lost, real problem. Yeah, lost opportunity cost. Well, that remnants are something that every shop, one-man shop, 100 install crew shop can relate to. So kind of coming back to that question about, you know, you mentioned, Mark, a mid-sized shop is where this starts making sense. So what's a mid-sized shop, and at I, what point does the, the, you know, the digital do, does this period. really start yeah. to make sense for uh, someone to consider? I think I think using the term mid-sized shop is almost like talking about buggy whips. I really don't think that that kind of thinking in 2020 is actually going to make sense. And when, when we decide small, mid-sized, medium, I think more interestingly is do you have digital shops that are leveraging automation and manufacturing, lean manufacturing techniques and manufacturing cell methodology, or do you have shops that are banging it out analog, making physical templates, cutting them out on analog machines, polishing by hand and installing. So it turns out you could have a really, really big shop mm -hmm. producing a lot of square footage that's not digital. It turns out, in the case of the shop that we just set up here in Oregon, we are running a shop with three machines a pro liner, a laser, slabsmith, and one employee. No employees, one worker. My son's running it. So is my son's shop small or big? Well, it turns out it's a small shop. But from a digital standpoint, we've deployed slabsmith. We've deployed all, these, all the technologies with the exception of 
large ERP business management software because a shop with no employees simply doesn't need that. Mm -hmm. But as far as from a manufacturing standpoint, when we start talking about shop sizes now, I think it's more interesting to talk about is this shop completely digitally integrated? Are, are they, is their entire process, or what part of the process are they in? Where are they at digitally? Because it turns out every shop is a little bit digital. If you have a cell phone and you make a phone call to a customer, you're doing something digitally. If you schedule a job on Google Calendar, you're doing something digitally. If you're sending an email to a customer, you're doing something digitally. It's not like doing something digitally is alien or weird. It's no more different than using a phone. It's just a tool to accomplish a task that we use the word digital because it's a, you know, it's, it's a digital saw. Well, who wouldn't want a digital saw? When you start thinking about, and I think this is some of the some of the very interesting things that we've seen happen over the last, really since the recession. It, it used to be that investing in digital technology, just like cell phones 20 years ago, it was something for the land of the rich and the successful. It turns out you had to have a lot of money to buy a router back in the day. It was a quarter million dollar investment. Mm -hmm. And usually the workflow went like this. You had your janky bridge saw, then you bought a nice manual bridge saw like a a Park Yukon or a, a, a GMM, one of those big monster uh, uh, Euros or whatever. You'd have a manual bridge saw. And then at some point, your dream, my dream, Aaron's dream, <laughs> was to invest in a router. Mm -hmm. a Gotta CNC. get me a CNC router, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was a quarter million dollar commitment. You had your $50,000, $60,000 saw, and then you had this quarter million dollar commitment. Well, back in 06 and 07, it turns out that the problems the routers were solving were you could solve the same problems in other ways. If you need to put an OG edge on something, you could grab the Master 3500 and do the OG shuffle, right? If you needed to cut out a sink, you'd do a grinder. So to, to make that transition, that's kind of where our brains went when, when we use the language, mid-sized shop. Mm -hmm. A mid-sized shop was somebody that had bought a CNC, mm -hmm. right? Now, today, when we think about it, like cell phones, you can get a lot more technology, a lot more capacity, a lot more, a lot more oomph for the dollar you're spending. Today, you can spend $100,000 and get a five-axis saw and be digital. And what's interesting, and, and, and one of the things we dealt with, you dealt with, we had this strange problem where we would go out and digitize a kitchen. With a, we'd measure it digitally. Yeah. Then we would have to come back and make plastic templates and go to an analog system, right? Where now we got to cut all these pieces out analog, and then we would oversize them feed them into a CNC and actually do a 360-degree process on them because our saws were not accurate enough to be allowed to use pin saying to, precise, to do precise injuries. So now the CNCs are working 25, 30% longer than they should have been. Mm. And, and the whole, so I think really when you start thinking about what is a mid-sized shop, to me a mid-sized shop is someone who's deployed a digital process, right? You're, di you're, templating, you're, digitally temp you're, di you're templating digitally, you're cutting digitally, you're laying out digitally, you're scheduling digitally, you're, you're, and if you have a CNC, you're doing edge work digital. And I think what's getting interesting now, today, in 2019, going into 2020, is I've sold 130 five-axis saws by now. I mean, a lot of five-axis saws. And, and what we're finding out is that people are buying multiple five-axis saws. It's right here in this market, I've got three customers that have three five-axis saws and don't have a CNC. Hmm which is interesting. And, and, and I think what we're finding is because that a lot of the uh, markets, especially our market, where we're at, what, 80% eased edge, would you say? Our business isn't, but I, I think that that's probably largely true. I mean, yeah. in our market, a lot of quartz, 80% quartz. I'm at a distributor right now, and I, I see bundles going in and out, and it's quartz. Mm -hmm. It's not UbaTube. It's not Santa Cecilia. It's quartz, quartz, quartz. And most of that quartz that's getting, getting fabricated in our market is getting fabricated 
with an eased edge. And what that segues into when we talk about small shop, little shop, let's talk about dust. Okay, we're going into 2020. I think a lot of shops need to wake up because what's going to we've been talking about doing wash down and not making dust for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, those of us in the SFA, a lot of us have went to wet processing back in 05, 06, years 07. Ago. Years ago. We wrote magazine articles out of it, and, and a whole lot of our community just said, you can't fabricate. That's just not the way to fabricate. We're going to make dust. The hell with you. Well, now we are in 2019, and now NPR just ran a huge, huge hit piece on silicosis and stone shops. Yeah. And, uh, there was a big article in Australia that came out. I mean, suddenly everybody's buying dust walls. What do you need a dust wall for? Well, because i got to cut out my sink. It's going to make dust. Wait a minute, man. You're going to spend $40,000 on a dust wall when you can spend $125,000 on a saw that will not only cut up your job, but also cut out your sink dust-free. Yeah. It'll cut out your faucet holes dust-free. And suddenly, we're in a whole new era, a whole new amazing world. We're a shop with as little as one employee. My son's been running the business by himself without any employees for three months now, producing about 150 feet a day. Mm. This is, this is what technology does for you. So when we talk about shop sizes, what we really should be talking about is are you digital or not, and what are the advantages, and what's the ROI? Well, it turns out, it turns out that, for example, it's Saturday. Aaron can come in on a Saturday morning. Not going to happen. Load a, sl <laughs> load a slab into your saw with the vacuum lifter, push a button, go back to your office, read Flipboard, play a half-hour Call of Duty, come back out, the job's dropped, pull the parts, put them on a cart, load another slab, push a button, chill out a little bit and oh my god you're actually manufacturing kitchens and you or your employee is doing something else productive or mm. fun while the machine's doing the work mm. suddenly things get interesting right i mean to me so when i look at where all this is going and, and when you say when's a shop big enough to buy it how big do you have to be to invest in digital technology i i don't think that's even mm. a sensible conversation if you're a small shop and you're not digitized you have a distinct problem mm. You are now in a competitive landscape where approximately 30 to 40% of your competition is actualized, they're digitized, they're efficient, they're crushing it. And I think the smaller shops are going to find themselves in the position where it's very difficult to compete and actually make money. You might make a wage, but to actually make money, to actually have value in your company, to, to, to recognize a genuine great return on your investment and your time, if you don't go digitally, I don't know, I don't know how much... And it may vary market by market. And I'm not saying you're doomed. You can certainly keep fabricating by hand. But I don't think the question is anymore, when am I going to get a digital saw? Or if I'm going to get a digital saw? I think the question is, when am I going to get a digital saw? And we're seeing that. The data shows us that. This isn't, this isn't a guess. We're not, we're, not, we're not speculating. We see it. You've seen it. He sees it with the slabsmith, right? And what's interesting, we've, we've introduced this $120,000 technology, these five-axis saws, and people are, are buying them and using them. And what's interesting is people that would have never considered Bill's product, Slabsmith, suddenly once you're digitally cutting, when, it's funny, when manufacturing comes, it becomes easy, everything else becomes hard. See, when making stuff is easy, laying out is hard. Hmm. When making stuff is easy, installing is hard. And it's very interesting to see the shops that digitize that originally the manufacturing challenge was the challenge. Mm -hmm. We got to router it. We got to polish it. We got to glue it up. We got to grind it back. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to QC it. Well, now everything's flipped. We're banging out eased edge on cords. We don't have to rot it. We don't do all this funky stuff. We're not doing OG bullnose on some kind of stone where it's flaking out every six inches and we're sitting there with super glue and, and, and color matching it and get the ager and dye the edges because it doesn't quite match, you know, and, and, and get, get the T-Pox V because this dyed slab's not brown. Remember all that ridiculous crap? Yeah. The, the customer calls up NASA and points the Hubble telescope at your countertop and says, oh, my God, what is this little spot? We just, the, the, we're not living in that world anymore. And so I think as we look at all this stuff, and we look at digital technology, 
it's becoming almost insane not to do it because the numbers, it's so attainable, it's so achievable, it's mm. so doable that to not do it is crazy. And I think when you see what's coming down the pipe with the silicosis and the OSHA, mm -hmm. what's going to happen is the shops that are digital, that are cutting wet, that are doing wash down, they're doing all things appropriately. If this becomes a serious thing, you are, as a shop owner, not only are not doing right by your employees, but you could be setting yourself up to be criminally negligent. Mm -hmm. You could find yourself in a lawsuit at some point in your career by not investing in digital technology, by not washing down your shop. Not only are you not getting a good ROI, not only are you not getting making money, but you could find yourself at the receiving end of a lawsuit. Yeah. And that's something as shop owners we don't want. We want to avoid that. And, and it turns out that processing what is not a big deal. It's just work. You just have to change your habits. Yeah. Change is hard. We've all had to do it, right? But at the end of the day, if it's taking care of your customers, and it's and it, here's the crazy thing, right? Like if you're cutting out a sink with a wet grinder, it turns out the turbo blades last longer. When it's wet. When it's wet. Right. They cut better when it's wet. Yeah. Your grinders last longer when they're wet because you're not getting as much resistance. You're not having to fight so hard and burn the blades up. So it turns out there's a lot of advantages to processing wet. Daily wash down. If you wash down, see, if, if, you, if, you, if you start doing everything wet and you don't wash down your shop, the water dries up at night, and now you've got dust on the floor, and you just get that stuff airborne again. So one of the processes that we do in our shop, and what you guys should be doing in your shop, is doing a daily washdown. And it turns out, this is like insane, it turns out that when you wash down your shop every day, the craziest thing happens. Your shop becomes very clean. And it turns out that when employees work in a clean environment, they're happier. Mm -hmm. It turns out that happy employees do quality work. Now, what a crazy world where taking a little bit of time to wash down your shop and clean will actually have a positive impact on your bottom line. And, yeah. and until fabricators can look at it that way, and until they can absorb it that way, start and, and do it, you're gonna get a positive ROI on being clean, you're gonna get a positive ROI on going digital. It is the future, it, it, it'd be like, who, who carries around a brick cell phone anymore that doesn't have a screen on it, mm -hmm. right? But yet we're using saws that were made at the same time as that cell phone. Mm. Those big brick cell phones, remember those damn oh, things? Yeah. People were cutting on manual bridge saws when those, but who the hell's still using a brick cell phone and yet we're still cutting slabs on a manual saw? Mm. That doesn't make sense to me. There's, there's something I think that you might be uh, able to address that I think is probably a, an interesting question. That is, you know, what is the order of events to go digital? Where do you start? That How was going to be my next question. Yeah. Is, is, is someone who's got an operation that's currently creating dust, they've got a bridge saw, maybe they have a CNC, maybe they don't. Great question. Where do they begin? I mean, to me, the obvious starting point is scheduling, using digital tools to, to do invoicing, QuickBooks. That's the obvious, simple answer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, every shop should be having some sort of accounting system. Every shop needs some kind of communication system, some kind of, that's basic, okay? Mm -hmm. I think everybody in the stone industry is digital at that level. So where's your starting point? Get a digital calendar and stop writing on a whiteboard on your, on your wall or a, right. a dry erase right. board or, okay, let's start there. That's free. Okay, Google Calendar's free, email's free, yeah. right? These tools are available, they're free, yeah. okay? The next step, to me, it's not even a question or debate. You get a digital saw in conjunction with a digital templating solution. Mm -hmm. Having one without the other is tough. If you think you're gonna draw your kitchens by hand and then feed that CAD mm -hmm. file into a digital saw, you're, you're, you, it, 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 it doesn't, it, it's I, not realistic. I have a one customer that does it, it boggles my mind, okay? Mm -hmm. It just makes sense to me. You might as well be cutting manually because you're now not getting the time savings you should be getting and you're not getting the accuracy you could be getting. Right? See, these are, the, these are things you don't think about, right? When you have a manual bridge saw, right? When you're making stick templates, you've got that wall and you scribe your wall with the sticks. What you're really doing is you're kind of splitting the difference. You're making two or three ribs and it's good enough, it works. Well, suddenly when you're processing digitally and measuring digitally, you're making insanely precise parts, right? Yeah. And 
to not have a digital templating solution that's incapable of really accurate measuring to couple with your saw, to lose that accuracy, if, and this is another thing, guys, I'm thinking about going digital, right? When you cut up, a, when you measure with whether you're using a proliner or a laser or whatever, right? When you're measuring digitally and capturing accurate dimensions and you're making accurate parts, it turns out your installs go a lot faster. Mm -hmm. There's not as much caulking. Your seams line up. You're, you're, you're not doing that thing where you take the countertop out, you open up the back of the van, you pull out the sawhorses, you set the countertop on the sawhorse, you dig out the grinder, your employee yep. makes a big old pile of dust, it dusts yep. the neighbor's black Mercedes, they come over and yell at you, what the heck is wrong with you people, <laughs> right? And, and, and instead, you just go in the house, you put the countertop, and you go, oh my God, it fits. And the problem with that is that eventually your installers get to the point where on that rarest of rare occasions where somebody does need to pull out a grinder, they're so unfamiliar with it, they don't know how. <laughs> it's not... That's not too far from. No, the it's truth. reality. It's, it's it, it, it is the, that the, possible. The real crazy thing is, is when you go to a shop where they've been using Slabsmith, and they and for whatever reason they have to lay something out manually. <laughs> like it happens to me. I know how to use Slabsmith, and I'm going. I'm going. I'm helping guys with their saw. I'm training them. Or I'm visiting. Hey, Mark, can you help us lay out this job? Uh, yeah, let's get the two A-frame set up side by side, and let's put the slabs <laughs> together. And now we don't have a physical template, so let's kind of visualize this, take a tape measure. When are you going to buy Slabsmith, dude? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, it's hard for me to. Well, and, and let's get back to this order of events. So, as you said, and I think it was a good, valid point, this notion, you know, you, it's really easy to get started with things like scheduling and, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, then I think you're right. I agree with you completely, and I think they need to be bought at the same time. I don't think there's any sense in buying a temp template machine without a saw, and I don't think there's any sense in buying a saw without I a template. I disagree with that. Well, and when they we, go together. Yeah, and when we bought our we bought our temp digital templating system in advance because we knew we were buying a CNC, and we wanted sure. to not learn two things at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, no, but, that's fine. You know, that no, was, I mean, but, but that's but, effectively but, the but, same. But, like, yeah. that's for all... You get your thing a month ago to get familiarized with the yeah, sure. Right, right. But the idea that you're going to digitally temp today in 2019, especially if you don't have a CNC machine, the idea that it you're going a to lot of sense. buy a laser, a template, or template kitchens digitally, then make analog templates, and then cut them manually—that just that I just. That's, that's odd to me. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that there's any... No, they go together. The, the templating and the saw go together. Mm -hmm. and, and, then I, and then I think what happens, and I think this is where it gets interesting, because I'm, and I'm not speculating. I've sold a lot of five-axis saws to very small shops. I've helped a lot of customers cross over the bridge from analog to digital. The saw that they bought from us was the saw that, that introduced them into the digital manufacturing process. And I think what's fascinating to watch is as these shops evolve and grow with this technology and start to recognize an ROI, inevitably they buy a follow-up machine. Because this is the path. If you're not growing, you're shrinking. If you're shrinking, you're dying, okay? And it, it turns out that what's fascinating is what the next machine is that they buy. In some cases, it's another saw. In some cases, it's an edge machine. In some cases, it's a CNC machine. Mm -hmm. And that's where things get really fascinating. And I think, I think that's what's great is because the fabricators now have options. It's not like there's a, a, a set rule. Well, you get this, and then you need to get this, and then you need to get this, and then you need to get this, and then you're an inter intermediate size shop, and you're in the big leagues now. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that kind of thinking even makes sense anymore. But I think it's common. I think a lot of people do start with that basis that... I'm not a legitimate shop until I've made this leap into the digital age. And whether it's valid or not, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't know that it's invalid. I don't think it's, it's fair to make a, a blanket statement because at the end of the day, Aaron, at the end of the day, I can go to Home Depot, buy a skill saw and a grinder, yeah. and fabricate a kitchen that's as beautiful as if it came off a machine, okay? 
people make beautiful kitchens. Machines make it easy. Okay, yeah. I've gone to shops that are completely digitized, that are running Slapsmith, that have every machine under the sun and 20 of this and 5 of that, and it turns out they're cranking out crap. They're, they're cranking out stuff that would make a lot of my customers throw up in their mouth, okay? And, and I see this, okay? So at the end of the day, people make beautiful kitchens. Machines make it easier. Productivity and profitability are byproduct of intelligent deployment of these systems, okay? It takes all of it. Technology, digital machinery, is not a panacea for... for, for no, in for, fact, for, if you for, do it wrong, it'll take you out. Yeah, it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll take you under. Like, like if you're not com com committed, pre prepared yes. and committed to use this equipment correctly and do the research and, and, and be smart it could be it could sink your boat you, you got you get a five thousand dollar a month payment and you get a zero roi on that and now you have a five thousand dollar penalty i go to shops where guys have bought used machines for like you know, fifty eighty thousand dollars cncs that they never were able to get running and it's still right. sitting there so not only did they lose the money on the machine sitting there not only and, and let's not even and get into let's not even get the frustration the embarrassment and all the annoying parts of that <laughs> the, the self-flagellation you inevitably have to go to every day you walk in your shop and you see a machine there that's not making you any money the worst part is now you got to get rid of it. It turns out that getting rid of a machine is not easy either, mm. especially when you spent eighty thousand dollars for it and it's not making you any money. Then you try to sell it, and you'll see these machines sold for five or ten thousand mm. dollars, right? So be careful out there if you're buying used equipment. <laughs> but I, 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 and I, the rule, then the real cool thing, it's like cell phones, man. Who goes out and buys used cell phones anymore? You know, it turns out that the, 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 the technology, the pricing's coming down across the spectrum, mm. or at least the price is coming down. The the, the, the price to it's been cut in half. It used to be you had to spend a quarter million dollars to go digital, really, I mean, realistically. And now you can do that for half that money. And yet, we are now going to be able to be much more efficient with that much smaller investment. Mm. And I think that's where, I think that's what's exciting. I think that's what, that's, and, I, and, I, and look, you're seeing it. This isn't, you see all the products are being brought to, to market by different machine manufacturers, and it turns out all the development all the rev, all the all the things that are pushing the envelope, all the things that are, the Sasso's neck check's a good example. Uh, uh, what are some other examples? There's a lot of great examples of machinery that is really pushing the envelope. And where you're seeing that pushing, you got the robots. You've got you've got the new five-axis saws from Park. You got the new five you got the new five-axis saw jets from from Northwood. You've got I think where you're seeing the advancement of technology, where you're seeing the push, where you're seeing the trend is on the sawing side. Why does that make sense? What well, makes sense because that's really the first step in the digital manufacturing process, and it turns out. If you're cutting out sinks on your saw, if you're coring faucet holes on your saw, if you're doing radius work on your saw, listen to this. I was in, I was on the East Coast last week. We were, we were working on one of our new saw jets, right, the next jet. And we took a piece of six centimeter material. We drew an, a DuPont OG. And then we put it on a four foot radius. And we machined a 6CM OG, du, DuPont OG profile with a saw blade hmm. on a water jet. We went and picked up a finger bit. We cut fluted drain boards on a saw jet. Think about this. And this is the kind of stuff, this is what we're seeing going into 2020 that I think is exciting. I, I, think, I think another big, we talk about digital, where there's a big gaping hole where somebody needs to fill it, is software, ERP software. Nobody's hit the home run yet. Everybody's struggling with it. Everybody's pushing on it. I see a lot of different products coming out. I see a lot of development in this sector. I think it's fascinating. I worked on a software development team myself for a couple of years. I, th I, think, I think one of the big things that we're looking for in 2020, what I'd like to see happen is somebody come up, hit the ERP solution out of the park. So describe that. What's an ERP? Uh, e ERP is uh, uh, like corporate level software that's in, you know, Right now, like if you go to a company like Cisco or you go to any large company, they've got custom developed software that's manu that's industry specific that solves problems for that industry. What we've got in our industry right now is 
there, there's products that do a great job, but they don't do the whole enchilada, right? right? Nobody's, nobody's sewn. You're not using this company for your email and this company for your messaging and this company for your, for your project management. And you, so you've got these guys that are doing project management really well. You've got these guys over here that are doing inventory really well. You're using your Gmail. You might be using your Google Calendar. You might be using this. You might be doing that. You might be using a hodgepodge. You might have, a, you might have your labels being made by this company and your, 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 your software is being done by this company. Your accounting's being done by this company. You're, you're, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So you might have six or seven software suites where you're doing duplicate data entry. Oh, yeah. And so as you start to, as you get, one of the things that happens when you get digital, you start processing more material. As you process more material, you need to process more data. As you process more data, you need data management systems. And unfortunately, the data management systems in place, the ERP software, the, the, the bigger level that looks at the whole picture, you know, where, where, you're, where you're dealing with your inventory, where, you, where, you, where, you're, where your employee communication systems are all under the same roof, where, where when you put a slab on hold, it talks to your, your your CRM software that you're managing your customers, so that you're not having to use the CRM sales force, for example, to generate the lead. Then turn around and make the reservation on Moraware, and then turn around and go to Slabsmith and designate that you want your remnant on inventory and go to QuickBooks to create an invoice, and, and on and on and on. And, and I think going into 2020. I think what I'm hoping to see, what I'm looking for, well, I know what my customers are looking for, what they're asking for, and unfortunately I'm not in the software business, but what my customers are asking for is integrated solutions, software as a service, software that makes sense, right, that's deployable, that can grow with their company. I think that is what we're, I, I, that's what, if we're going to 2020, and the 20s, the roaring 20s, let's roar out some ERP software, because <laughs> man, my people need it, I know you need it, uh, I know Bill talks to customers every day, they need it, I mean, it's it, to me, it's a big, big, a big opportunity for somebody. You guys nailed it with a no-lift system. How many of you sold now? A lot. So check it out. <laughs> He's being humble. Aaron has sold a boatload of no-lift systems. When these, when this, and, and technologies like this, if you don't think no-lift is a technology, you're nuts. Look what, look what Aaron did. And this is what I love about Aaron's operation. He's a fabricator that saw his need. He loves his employees. His employees have been with his company for a very, very long time. I know some of those guys, and they're still there. The problem is when you get to our age, my age, mm. I'm sitting here with a backache right now. My back is friggin' killing me. And, and how long has it been since you installed? Yeah, 10 years ago, okay? Yeah. I have back problems now. Now that I didn't have them, but I guarantee you it's because I was carrying that 6CM OG bullnose up a flight of stairs. I saw that the other day on Facebook. I said, oh my God, I forgot what that was like. But <laughs> but the point is, if you look what Aaron did, right? He saw a problem. And like, was it three years ago when you started developing on this? Yeah, about three years ago when we launched it. Four years ago when we yeah, started Yeah, four years ago, Aaron it. called me up. He says, I've got this idea. I've got this cart. Check it out. It's going to be about $7,000. And, and i got to be honest with you. My brain went, $7,000 for a cart? Are you mad? I'm out. I, I, don't, I don't, this is, uh, good luck, man. I, I hope people get, I get it. I would spend 7,000 bucks on it, but I consider myself a, a progressive kind of guy. I don't think most people are going to be able to wrap their brain around. Mm -hmm. They're just going to tell dudes, hey, <laughs> carry that shit in the house, right? Well, it turns out, and, and I think it's the same thing with the five axis saw. I think it's the same thing with Slabsmith. I think once the customer sees and, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about social media how we're, what we're doing right now with this mm -hmm. podcast what you see on Facebook what you see on on a, on a SFA site mm -hmm. and, and what you see all that stuff I think people are learning and right away when people started sharing videos of their employees two guys bringing in a eight foot long by five foot high island that weighs 800 pounds and effort, effortlessly installing that suddenly Aaron's probably having problems building these things fast <laughs> enough am I right yeah. the, 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 once you understand what the technology does for you and you can get over the the price tag and the cost and you and it really is you can't afford not to yeah can i you know let me can i address that for just a second it's one of the mistakes all all humans make is we mistake ex cost for value mm -hmm. all right and in the end 
everybody really means value when they say something's expensive. They just think, well, that's this many dollars. However, um, that doesn't explain everything. In the end, nobody's in business to see how much money they can spend. Mm -hmm. Everybody's in business to see how much money they right. can make. Yeah, that's a great point. And so we, we need to look at everything as a value proposition. And I'll give you a really simple example. If I was to say to you today, Aaron, hey, I'm going to give you two choices, okay? And first off, give me 10, 10 cents today, and tomorrow I'll give you back 11 cents. That's a 10% profit. It's not bad, mm -hmm. right? Your other choice, give me a million dollars today, and tomorrow I'll give you $2 million. And I'm going to ask you, which one would you like? I feel like this is a trick question, but I'll take the million dollars. Okay, well, no, that's not a trick question. The <laughs> point is, which one's more expensive? Right. <laughs> that's a <laughs> All right. point. Right, and you picked the expensive one. And why did you pick the expensive uh, the one? The return is so much greater than 100%. Exactly. So the, we have to yeah. teach people sometimes to stop I, talking about you know cost I'm gonna and start talking about value. You know I'm going to steal that, right? I just put that in my pocket. That, 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 <laughs> that, 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 that is now in my repertoire. You just, you just added something else into my lexicon. I, well, I love it. Thank you for that, Bill. That yeah, was, no worries. But I mean, it is. And this is what I tell people. I said, let's stop talking about what it costs and start right. talking about how much money you make. Because right. that's what matters. Yep. It doesn't matter if it costs 10 cents or $10 million. What matters is what does it return? Yep. That's the value. So don't, con don't confuse expense with value. Well, I think what we've seen with the no lift, the, the people get the value, but it takes time. There, there's a, there's a, you, change is difficult. You've been doing it one way. Change is difficult. It, it's going to be disruptive. No matter how simple it is, it's yeah. going to change things. And so people need a little bit of time to, to adjust it. to the idea and process you know, like this digital, I think that's where people are at. It, now they're aware of it, and they're in this processing stage where they're going, I get the sense that if I don't do this, I'm going to get left behind. But but where do I start? And so, you know, we, we've talked about this. So what, what's, what's... What else is interesting? I'll tell you what's interesting. We're in a warehouse right now. We're at my friend Majid. He owns a company called Casa Bella in Portland, Oregon, and that's where we're sitting here doing this podcast. And one of the most interesting things to me that, that we talked about walking in the building this morning, we came out of my shop, walked into here, and I'm looking at all the courts, man. There's like acres of courts, right? The bundles are flying out the door. And you come, and, and Majid has a huge selection of beautiful exotic stones. And you come around the corner, and now this is what's interesting for 2020. I think this is interesting. There are about 35 colors of porcelain slabs that look exactly <laughs> like exotic stones. Now, first thing that went through my brain is why would you buy the fake stuff when you could buy the real stuff? But the reality is there are a lot of advantages of the thin format compact surface porcelain. And what's interesting to me about this particular product is suddenly digital processing is almost a must-have. Hmm. I'm not saying it's a must-have, but suddenly, how are you going to lay out these ultimately pristinely detailed slabs without layout software? Mm. It turns out when you're processing porcelain, you're cutting out sinks, having special finger bits formulated for that as opposed to a grinder, as opposed to a bowl wheel, mm. a lot of things, wet processing, digital processing lends itself to porcelain. Yeah. Water jets even more so. Suddenly saw jets become more interesting because now five-axis water jetting technology is a critical path tool for processing porcelain. So I think I think 2020, we got a lot of interesting things going on. We got the ERP software, which hasn't happened yet. Yeah. We've got the digital sawing that's coming into fruition. We've got five-axis water jetting coming down the pipe. Companies are building five-axis standalone water jets. Mm. People are building saw jets that have five-axis water jet technology capability. 
I'll have to put a plug in for Sasso. They're pushing the envelope. Not only can you water jet, saw jet, five axis, you can pick up tools and mill and do all kinds of interesting things. So I think 2020 is going to be the year where we figure out if porcelain is going to become a real thing. Now, a lot of guys will tell you it is a thing. Um, I think it's sort of a thing. I think it's a thing that's up and coming. How big of a slice of the market this takes, nobody knows. I'll be the first to tell you. I was the guy in 2007 when I first saw the three or four slabs of uh, engineered stone. I said, this looks like crayons. Who would buy this fake <laughs> shit, right? Who would, who would buy this, right? I was that guy. I'm guilty. I, I did not see the future. I did not call the ball. I would, were you one of those guys? No, I, I, I got you, an entirely different story. Did you, that, did you embrace quartz? Because I didn't. Oh, yeah. I resisted it. I used to have a little quartz sliver in my shop that I cut. to. I don't even remember me doing this. I cut it to like a point. It was like a wedge. And customers would come in and say, oh, I want, what about this new quartz stuff? And I would take a little torch, a little pocket torch, and I'd burn the end of the quartz, and it would start burning like a candle yeah and then i'd blow yeah, it we out. learned that the, the hard way the first job we ever processed <laughs> we whip out the it? weed burner to dry oh. it off to laminate it and like well that didn't work oh. <laughs> i guess you no, can't no, do that no we, we would light it and it would look like a little <laughs> candle and and I, and I would blow it out and i said i think I'll, and i'd take the torch and i'd hold it on the granite for a minute i said i'd rather go with the real stuff yeah but here we are 80 percent of what's getting but, processed is quartz and there's a warehouse full of porcelain behind me yeah. that lends itself to all this new technology that's coming out mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the exciting things for 2020 i don't know what do it you is think? actually kind of interesting that the last point you made sort of uh, to the side there and that is that things like porcelain actually do you know lend themselves to what's happening it, it's all a, a it's a bit, a bit of a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. Everything has to happen, you know, together for it to really, all of it to really succeed. And yeah, porcelain is certainly one of those. And as he said, things like water jets suddenly become, there's a real r serious reason for them. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense. So we are, we're, we're hitting a point where we're seeing a, the, the confluence of a number of different things that without each other, they wouldn't perhaps succeed as well. Right. But when, yeah. you, when you add up all of those variables, dust mitigation, liability, manufacturing the competitive landscape these new products that are that are just they're, they're more complicated to fabricate with old school technology and exactly. that, the sales rep as we came in here he's, he took me to the window and pointed down onto the the warehouse floor and said what do you think about all that porcelain down there and i said doesn't really matter what i think it it's coming i'm a fabricator and people want it and so what i think is kind of irrelevant i got to figure out how to service the customer and you know with these the, the confluence of these variables you know sure. it's an inner it is an interesting time well and i think another thing about the porcelain that's interesting and I, and I have customers in sacramento i've got and i like sacramento because it's like a confined demographic it's interesting i've got like eight customers in sacramento so it's like a lab almost and it's interesting i've got one customer that has embraced porcelain i mean he was cutting decton two years ago he was early on the gravy train he has bought his second saw for me and he bought the second saw because he's not processing much quartz, he's mm -hmm. not cut, but what he does do is he's figured out that if he runs the blade rather slowly at 30 inches, 40 inches a minute at rather slower speeds, he can get insanely crisp, perfect cuts. Mm -hmm. So he bought a on the porcelain on the porcelain. So he bought a second saw so he could process more porcelain mm -hmm. because the cut batch times are taking a little bit longer, right? And, and I see this guy killing it with porcelain. And I go in that shop, I'm like, man, this is the future. Mm -hmm. And then I go to the other seven shops. And I said, when are you guys going to start doing porcelain? And they say, oh, my God, I'm not going to touch that crap. I hate it. Right. So what I think the other interesting thing about porcelain is that if you're the kind of fabricator that wants to go the high-end craftsman route, you now have an avenue of profitability where you're, the field and the competition that you're dealing with 
you're not going to be experiencing that. You're going to be able to charge more money per foot. You're going to be able to specialize. And I think when you look at the large-scale manufacturing operators that are banging out, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 feet a day at countertops, porcelain would break their business model. Mm. They would not be able to hit their numbers. They would not be able to maintain quality and control. And I think the big advantage, the big, for, for smaller shops, for, for, I don't like saying small, for the big advantage for, for, for compact manufacturing cells, small digital shops like what we're running across the street is this now opens up, up a whole new avenue for potential profitability and leveraging of the technology we've already purchased and invested in that leverages the layouts, leverages the five axis capabilities and everything's mitered and mm-hmm. everything has to be insanely precise, mm-hmm. right? And so I think for Porcelain for 2020, for our smaller shops that are digitally integrated, that do have the right technology, I think that Porcelain's a fascinating avenue to discover and learn about and incorporate into your into your, into your uh, product offerings. And, and t- I think, you, I think you, you don't learn, if you don't learn Porcelain, you're doing it at your own detriment. Mm-hmm. I don't think that porcelain's gonna take over. I don't think it's ever gonna be more than five, 10, maybe at the most 15% of the market. That would be my prediction, but mm-hmm. my track record on predicting these kind of things has not been good in the past, <laughs> so take that with a grain of salt. But, but, but take ha- five or 10 or 15 or 20% out of your business tomorrow and it-, or, it or, or yeah, think Let's just say you can't but, ignore but, it. But, right. but, but <laughs> let's say it's 5% of your local market, but you're doing 80% of that work at a margin that's three times higher than what you would get processing 3CM quartz with an eased edge. You know why we call it an eased edge, right? It's called an eased edge because it's easy, everyone does it, and it's not a challenge. <laughs> it turns out that miting, mitering 12 millimeter portion is a little bit more of a challenge than banging out eased, out, eased, eased edge on course. Yeah. And you got to know how to build sinks, you got to know how to deal with the drains, there's a lot mm. of things you got to know. But when you know those things, mm. I think for the small amount of fabricators that learn this process, inculcate it into their manufacturing language, go out and start selling and supporting it. And I think you're going to start seeing stuff. You're going to start seeing a showers getting redone where they're just taking the porcelain and going right over the existing tile. <laughs> Okay, like you can imagine some of those nasty old uh, four by four dowel tile on a fiberglass tub. You can grab some six millimeter portion that looks exactly like a slab of Calcutta. I'm I'm looking out the window right now at it, and it's almost horrifying how much this porcelain actually looks like natural stone. It's it it literally is. You guys have not seen some of the more recent porcelain products. They literally look real. I mean, I looked at some Taj Mahal looking porcelain. I had a I did a double take. I couldn't believe it wasn't Taj Mahal. I see those things on the in in the shop now, and I walk over there. put my face right against it and I go what is this it's not just because I'm getting old and my eyes are going bad but but the point is I think I think you're gonna see applications where you could take a nasty little shower with a fiberglass base right you got the ugly fort and you could take three millimeter porcelain that looks like Calcutta mastic it or epoxy it on blop 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 three panels do a little returned edge or some Schluter metal and you've just for very little effort very little effort transform something where your cost to manufacture, distribute, and install is very low, but your potential to charge a lot of money is very high. Mm. I think it's interesting. As long as the community doesn't... Have you ever read Blue Ocean Strategy? Of course. It, I mean, that's the essence of it, of people of recognizing these, these little sub-markets We could do a whole podcast on this. The business I'm running right next door. Yeah. If that doesn't fit that criteria, nothing does. Yeah. This is an experimental business. It's working. It's interesting, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's Blue Ocean all day long. Yep. And what's even more interesting about it is, and this is some of the things we're talking about that are really interesting. It turns out if you've got two or three shops that are running the identical equipment, identical processes, trained by the identical people, that it turns out that three or four of these shops, although their potential capacity is 400 feet per shift per shop, if we can get four shops working in concert on a commercial job, some of these four small shops can come together crank out a multi-thousand square foot commercial project and then go back to doing what they're normal. 
there's a there's a nimbleness and a flexibility in the digital world that going into 2020 you might see some interesting opportunities of collaboration between existing shops sharing commonalities and technology that attack where, where smaller shops come together attack big projects and then break back apart in their normal routine well and it really does in, in a sense become you know, more like traditional manufacturing where which has been around forever these machine shops were commonly referred to as machine shops with whether they got CNC or old mills, there you could take a drawing. Everybody to, could make the and, same and thing. Anybody, in a sense, that had a machine, a legitimate machine shop, could make the same parts. They would QC the same. All of those standards exist. That has not been true of stone fabrication. You take a it's template. True now. To, well, that's what I'm saying. It is now we're moving in that direction where that uniformity is possible, which completely changes the entire landscape where. All kinds of things are... It's a very valid point. And yes. when we talk about a changing landscape, we're not just talking about the influx of technology and, and ways of thinking about manufacturing, manufacturing cells, cell-based manufacturing strategies, hub-and-spoke models. There's a lot of different things going on the manufacturing side. But where it gets really interesting right now today, this very day, this very day, venture capital is going to start pouring into our trade it already is mm. you're going to see you're going to see big vc groups buying up shops trying to create some sort of we're going to i'm not going to mention any names but there's a handful of them that, that pop into my head and and i don't know well, that like consolidating mm, i don't know if consulting's the right word but more like um they want a location in san francisco they want a location in la mm. they want a location in portland they want a location in car or in a in a las vegas Right, there's a, there's a couple companies that fit those models, hmm. and you've got some out in Canada that have locations in Canada, a couple locations down here yeah. in the Northwest. We know who they are. Oh yeah, and 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 I think that is sort of the harbinger. That is sort of the uh, if you look at the cabinet industry, it's a great model for this. Okay, and where things could wind up going, if you look at ca the cabinet industry, you look at a company like Merrillat, Craftmade. They produce a bajillion boxes. Do you know how many they install? Zero. Probably zero. I don't know. I could be talking on my ass, but I don't think I think they're a, ma a, ma a baseline manufacturer. And then mm -hmm. and then the cabinet shops. The, the local KBs, they do the installs, right? Right. And then, but in the local market, if you really want a custom-made badass cabinet, you don't call Merrill or Craftmade. Right. You custom, call that local guy. Custom shop. The problem is the small sh custom shops. If you're trying to compete with the manufacturing low-cost solution provider, you are going to get crushed like a bug in the future. You, if you're going to, if you want to stay small, you either got to figure out how to get efficient and compete dollar for dollar, because it turns out that small shops that deploy the correct amount of digital technology, you actually, your, co your job costing is competitive. You can be within pennies of what a large manufacturing plant costs to produce. It turns out that when you hit cycle start on a saw, when that saw goes into the motion, I don't care how big your company is, you could have, have 50,000 employees in a 200,000 square foot facility, my saw's gonna cut it at the exact same speed as your saw. Yeah. So then, then the question is, where do the big guys have advantages? Well, they have big, advantages in buying power they can buy the material a little bit cheaper but it turns out that today that's not the case we have vertical integration going all over on all over the place i think another trend that you're going to see that is scary for 2020 the scary thing to look forward to is distributors suddenly saying i'm tired of dealing with fabricators i'm going to become one and it and before in the past that was not a reality because simply our, 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 we were too tribal. The, the entire manufacturing segment and, and other companies had tried in the past and failed, and mm -hmm. failed spectacularly. Yeah. And they may say they didn't fail, but they failed. <laughs> and we all know who they are, and we're not going to talk about it, but there have been some colossal flops in the past. But in those flops are warnings. 
You see, it turns out that if you manufacture slabs for a living, and you get them specified for a big commercial project, and then someone comes along with some other material undercuts you, and now you did all the work to land the job, and somebody else just cuts you out of it because they beat your price by a dollar a foot, and you're that manufacturer, you say, well, okay, wait a minute. We're not going to do it this way anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a scary concept. But now there's another concept that's coming along, and you're seeing this happen right now. It's this actually happening. Large slab manufacturers will now secure a project and come to you and say, hey, Aaron, would you like to process 25,000 feet of this at this price and install it here? Mm-hmm. Sud- suddenly, suddenly... Well, that's essentially what's been happening at the, 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 the retail level with the, the big box stores. The manufacturers of product have gone to, to Home Depot, to Lowe's, to Costco, and said, we're going to sell this product. You're going to exclusively distribute and display our product at this price point, and effectively the same things happen. Is they've gone then back to the fabrication community and said, this is the price that we have to have this fab for. Right. And it has, that it might, and so, in so, my opinion, that's been... Um, so, so the battleground for stone fabricators, the battle space, is going to get really interesting mm-hmm. and really challenging. But in all of that chaos are some insane opportunities. There are some great opportunities if you're nimble, if you're digital, if you've got a sense of it. Because at the end of the day, the, the cost for the biggest shop to produce and the cost of a small digitally manufacturing cell is very close. When you pay rent on a building, you've got a 2,000 square foot building. We're, our, our manufacturing space uses about 2,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. We've got three machines in it. We should really have, probably have two or three guys. But if we had three guys in there, that space, taking up that much space in a really big factory, the cost is the same. Right. The employees are the same cost. The machines are the same cost. The rent is done by the square. I'm paying a buck a square foot. They're paying a buck a square foot. All things being equal, I don't have an executive C-suite. I don't have a bunch of executives I'm paying. I can interact with my customers and hug them. I can, I can manage my employees effectively. And suddenly I can leverage all my strengths and leverage technology to go toe-to-toe with the big guys. Mm-hmm. The problem is volume. The problem is volume. When you go to the big projects, is volume, right? How do we address that topic? Well, it turns out if I'm a digital manufacturing cell that's really squared away, and you're a digital manufacturing squared away, and there's five of us, we can band together, tackle a big project, and then go back to what we were doing. These are, there's a lot of opportunities out here for small guys. I, I, don't want, I, don't wanna, I don't want anyone to come away from this podcast being afraid of 2020 and vert- vertical integration from manufacturing and all this other mess. You, you don't need to be scared. You need to be aware of it. You need to understand it. You need to look around you and say, where are the opportunities in this, this, is, in this changing landscape, in this changing battlefield I find myself fighting on, and how can I move forward for my company and my best benefit and my best interest? And there's no right answer, guys. You, if, you're, if you're in Montana, what works in Montana may not work in Portland or Seattle, and vice versa, right? If, if, if I say, oh, I talk to guys in the Midwest, if you're in the heartland, 60% of what they're doing is not East Edge. They're doing Demi Bolnos. They're doing Crescents. They're doing Bevels. I had one customer call me, I'm doing Bevels. I'm thinking to myself, my God, when is, one of those who the hell does a Bevel? edge anymore. I mean, 2005 called, they want their countertops back. I mean, Bevel, Luna, Pearl, who does that? But I saw it on Facebook there. I'm like, my God, somebody's manufacturing. Somebody still wants this. So as I look at all this stuff and I look at, I look at, I look at 2020, I look at where we're going, I think there's things to be afraid of. I think there's things to worry about. I think there's, but I, I ultimately, I'm, 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 a, I'm a bull. I'm a bull. I think this market's going to keep kicking ass. I think fabricators are going to keep getting digital. I think you're going to see big, big operations pop up. I think I think you're going to see them effective. I think you're going to see them dominate certain market segments. Mm-hmm. It's there's going to be a time when when you if you've got five employees and one machine, the odds of you having a, a commercial big box account it's probably going to go down. Yeah. And you know what? That's probably a blessing because it's going to force you to focus on things you're good at. Like like when you when you when you make a kitchen when when Aaron or Mark or or if Bill were making kitchen when you make a kitchen for Home Depot, you're not hugging that customer. You're filling an order. You're 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 fulfilling a PO. 
It turns out that a small shop, when you go meet the homeowner and you've got that owner relationship or with a builder, those are things that the big guys can't compete on. Mm -hmm. And it turns out if you can get your manufacturing costs low enough by digitizing and you can hug, hug your customers, you may actually have a marketplace advantage when you start thinking about the actual dollar per foot of profit that's generated from every square foot that gets installed. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, so I, I don't want to, I don't make it sound like this is doom and gloom. I think, I think it's a positive, I think, I think 2020 is going to be huge. I think, I think as big as the last two or three years were, that we all the change and growth that we saw in the industry, I think we're seeing we're going to see even more. I don't think it's going to go backwards. I think it's going to keep going forwards unless, God forbid, something crazy happens in the economy. But I'm not seeing that. I'm not feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, I kept thinking maybe like eight months ago, maybe it's going to slow down. How much longer can this go on? Yeah, well, anybody who was, was doing business in 06 and 07 and then uh, 08 and 09, you just expect. Yeah, the, uh, it, it's only a matter of time before we yeah, repeat that. And, uh, Bill and I were talking about this last night. I, I, I am literally like a PTSD from the economy, right? <laughs> like I, I, things are going good. Everybody's winning, right? Yeah, rah, rah. I mean, this reminds me of 2007 to 08. And, and, I mean, it was like somebody took a two-by-four and bashed my head in an 08, right? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was that guy walking down the street with his pants around the ankle going, what just happened? How, how, did, I, how did I find myself here? What, <laughs> I had a sergeant, I had a CNC, I had a big shop, I had all these things going on, I was printing buckets of money, and suddenly there's no work. What happened, right? And, and, I, I, and I think, when, as, and I was talking to Bill, he goes, well, if you can't enjoy your success, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, I'm going to keep fighting because I can't seem to enjoy my success, right? I, I can't stop pushing because I, I, I do worry, but I think, I think it's a misplaced worry. But what, what, what I'm excited about and what I think, what I hope every, what I want, if I was going to say something to a group of fabricators, man, keep your eye on the ball, figure out how to leverage technology to improve your bottom line. Look at opportunities in the marketplace for profitability. Look at ways you can showcase your business to make you stand out apart from your competitors. If you are already digital, this is a sales tool, man. Make your shop look nice, clean it up. Bring your customers into your shop, expose them to your business. These are things that will get get a big ROI from, from referrals, man. If you're getting referrals, if you're entertaining, if, 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 if you're hugging your customers, you're gonna be able to compete with the big guys and you're gonna be able to win. What you're not gonna be able to do is run a manual bridge shop with a manual saw and try to compete with a shop that's running five sawjets, slab smiths, six CNCs, right. has 250 people. You are not going to be able to compete. You, you're going to have to leverage the same manufacturing technology and methodologies that the big shops do, if big shops, that, that people that are digital manufacturing facilities are implementing. If you can implement that technology, you can compete. Mm. But I don't think if you implement that, that's what I'm, I think. And I think maybe the, not even com compete maybe isn't even the right word necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's keep up. Well, it's uh, continue to be successful well, to accomplish say, your you goals can make a as profit. a business. In the end, what you care about is can you stay alive and make a profit? Right. Can you make the you money? Yep. And yeah, there's certainly, you know, part of that on a small shop can be things that, you know, you've got your own niche mm -hmm. because, you know, the box store company is very different than a, you know, the little boutique guy doing high-end, uh, you know, cool granite, right? Yep. Um, however, uh, the really interesting takeaway is to go back to what Mark said, and that is, is that you're actually both using the same technology. The actual cost of production is probably higher for the big guys because they have a lot more overhead, mm. right? But they also have some advantages you don't have, and it could be anything from marketing to, you know, other efficiencies. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean there's any, that, that still means that there's a spot for everybody. If you're a good, efficient business, and you're running your business well, and you're paying your employees a, a wage that keeps them happy, um, and you're 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 careful, and you find your niche. 
Um, I mean, I was actually happy about 2008. I'm one of the few people you'll ever talk to that was happy about 2008, and I was happy. I was not happy. I was uh, not I happy. Was. I'm still not happy. Well, I'll tell you why. I mean, I wasn't happy that the economy was going down, but before 2008, when I was showing people Slabsmith, um, all they would do is go, ooh, ah, ooh, that's really cool. What's it do? <laughs> you know, and I, I, I couldn't talk to anybody. Hmm. You know, everybody had a lot of money in their pocket before 2008, and nobody knew why. Mm-hmm. They weren't business people. That is right? true. Right? 2008 came, and, and I made the comment to most of the, the saw manufacturer. I said, listen, as long as you guys, you know, have done your homework and you've kept a little bit of money around for what invariably is going to happen sooner or later, which is a recession, right? Those of us that get through the recession are going to be in way better shape mm-hmm. after the recession because it gets rid of the riffraff. Mm-hmm. All right, and in fact, I saw a complete show. Well, for a couple of years, I saw you know almost nobody at the shows, mm-hmm. right? But after that, I saw a complete change in who was talking to me. Instead of people coming up and going, uh, "Ooh, ah, isn't that kind of cool?" But I don't know what it does. I had people come up, coming up and asking business questions, mm-hmm. and suddenly, I could tell them, you know, here's why you have an ROI. Here's why you have this. So for me, 2008, although it hurt everybody a little bit, we certainly went flat. Um, right after that, everything got easier. Mm-hmm. Because we got rid of a lot of the... And so I think that's one of the points I would make to this. We are going to have another recession. Yep. It's a question of when. You need to be prepared for it, and you need to be efficient so that when it happens, you have the backup and you have the plan to, to weather it. Because when you do, you'll have less competition afterwards, and everything will get better again. Yeah. Yep. I'm not ready to repeat that yet. No, no, none of us want to. No, no, I, no nobody <laughs> I, I wants to. But the, the point is recession. it will happen. <laughs> and if you, if you ignore it no. and, and say, hey, it's never going to happen to me, well, guess what happens? You yeah. go away. I'll just yeah. start, I'll start drinking again. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, one thing, you guys need to go to coverings. It's going to be in New Orleans. And I'll tell you a crazy story. I travel. You see me on Facebook. I'm, I've been to every state in the nation. I've been to pretty much every city. I've never, I'm embarrassed to say it. I'm 53 years old. I've never been to New Orleans. Huh. So if you guys come to New Orleans and come by the booth and visit, I will buy you a beer. We'll go out and do something fun. I am so excited to go to New Orleans just because it's not Las Vegas, just because it's not, <laughs> because it's not Orlando. So let's everybody come to Louisiana. Let's have a great time. Let's make it a great show so that they do it there again because I don't want to go to Orlando again. It's, I just don't want to go to Orlando for a long time. There, I don't want to do it. There was a t- I remember going to New Orleans probably in 2001, maybe 2002. That's where Coverings was at. And um, it, yeah, I missed that one. It, it, it's it's nice that they're changing things a little I bit. Remember so. when the show was in L.A.? Yeah, in Anaheim. I do yeah, remember that. I remember think, that. I think that was the we, first I, time I stayed at the Biltmore. Man, that that's where I met Barry Brandt. Was it was at those at the Biltmore? That was back in the day. That was like 2003, 2002. Yeah. No, you weren't there. I, 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 I remember going to an Anaheim show, but remember, I used to be in the metalworking industry. A lot of the same. Same city. So and the first Stone Expo I ever went to was in Kansas City, of all places, and it's been in Las Vegas now for so long. I can't even wow. remember how long ago that was. So, wow. so some things have changed. Other things haven't changed, like the venue for uh, for uh, I guess it's not even Stone Expo anymore. It's no, TISC. Yeah, TISC. I don't even want to get into how annoying that is. Yeah, like I don't. I do miss when it was just a stone fabrication trade show. I would love to see that come back. Uh, well, I don't think it's going to happen, but I'd love to see it. Yeah, that era's gone, kind of like uh, analog fabrication sounds like it may be becoming <laughs> yeah, a thing yeah, of the past with I, the advent I, I of all this technology. Be, it's never going to be gone. Look, you're, you're, we live in a 
world where it, it, look, it's human nature, man. You hire these guys, and and some and, and God bless them. I did the same thing. You're 28 years old. Okay, I'm gonna go start my own business. You're broke. You go buy a skill saw. You start chopping up slabs, and you fight the good fight. And there's abs. I want to please do it. Don't feel like if if you if you want to start a stone shop that you got to have a quarter million dollars. If you've got if you've got if you've got spark and you've got fire and you're willing to work your ass off for a very small amount of money and pay your dues within 24 to 36 months you'll be able to buy a machine and get digital. It'll take you 36 months. Yep. If you're willing to suck it up and do the work, you can you can get there in this. I, how do I know? My customers do it. I see it. Yep. I know it's possible. So so don't feel like all this this impending doom and gloom in 2020 with vertical integration and large scale manufacturing is something to be afraid of. Do your thing, focus, kick ass, and let's wrap up this fad. I gotta, I gotta go pack my suitcase because I'm flying to Australia. Well, let's do in, that, Mark. In, in exactly five hours. So let, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, 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 put, let's put a ribbon on it. Call it a show. We gotta do this again, Aaron. I enjoyed it. No, you know what we do have to talk about is, and there's not time now. It is, it's the silica, the silicosis. Oh, we could do a whole show on it. And we, and we should. It's interesting. We reached out to the author of that article. All right. To invite her onto the podcast to talk about it because it's I I think it's been I think it's been brushed aside by many who don't think it's as big of an issue as it is and and we can't and and, and, and look even man come on let's get real even if it only affected one in one hundred fabricators right one in one hundred is one too many yeah it's one too many right when the solution and, and, and when yeah. it's so mitigatable it's when the so solution is so easy it it is it is absolutely. Um, it's absolutely essential that it become more elevated in the conversation where, where this issue is forced. And we've been wondering why. I mean, we've reached out every which way possible to connect with Nels, the, the author of that article, and it's like radio silence. Like, why? Why is that? No, don't start a conspiracy. Well, we, don't want to breathe, <laughs> we just don't want to breathe I, dust. It's not a good idea. It, it's, but there, the issue hasn't been brought to the forefront to the degree that it needs to for the safety of the people working in these environments. And so... Uh, I want to pull on that thread and uh, continue to push that issue because I, I, don't, it's, I don't disagree, man. Let's, let's do it again. We'll, we'll hook yeah. up again when I get back from uh, looking at the kangaroos and the, the koala bears and the forest fires and whatever the hell's going on down there. Sounds sounds good. Well, Mark, thank you for being on the show. Bill, thank you for taking My the time pleasure. to join us today. Yeah. And I know that everybody on uh, everybody out there listening to the Fab Lab podcast is really going to appreciate this, and uh, as do I. So thank you, guys. You right bet. on, Aaron. Have keep do, keep up the good work. Rock the Fab Lab and, and keep working the no lift, man. I, uh, it's great stuff. Great uh, stuff. Yeah. Congratulations on the no lift, man. You guys are killing it. I love it. Yeah. We're, we're I, excited. I love it when a fabricator develops a product and brings it to market. I love it, man. Way to go. All right. Have Thanks. a good one. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks, guys. Yep. Ciao. <sighs> so, Wes, from your perspective, having arranged everything, all of the technology for us to do that interview, you listened to it from a different vantage point, you produced it, you edited it, you've crafted it. What was your perspective on that? You know, when I listened to it live, it, I really enjoyed it and it was fantastic. And then when I went through and edited it, I enjoyed it even more. So I've actually listened to the, <laughs> this episode five times already. It hasn't wow. even aired yet. It's it's long, yes, but the information you take away is, is there. And if you're in the stone industry, they talk about going digital and crossing that bridge. And it's not a matter of if, but when. Yep. And what that looks like, the size shop. So they really articulate it well, and I, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, we covered every aspect of it, ladies and gentlemen. And so we hope you enjoyed that uh, that fantastic interview. There are more interviews coming down the pike. and Just know that and know that next week we'll have another episode of the Fab Lab podcast. 
In the meantime, make sure you visit AaronCrowley.com. Make sure you visit MoreAware.com. If there's anything we can do on our end, do not hesitate to reach out to connect with me at AaronCrowley.com. And until next time, happy fabricating. Bada boom.